this week's Braincast. My name is Pospo and I am happy. Why are you happy, Pospo, you would ask? Well, it's mid-September and the sun decided to make its glorious appearance once again up in the London skies. 26 degrees. Can you believe it? I can't. Enough though with my weather forecast. Last week we welcomed Dr. Ahmed Hankir, widely known as the wounded healer. We talked about being a psychiatrist with living experience of a mental health disorder. We talked about Islamophobia and the origins of hummus. Yes, it is from Lebanon, but it's delicious regardless of where it comes from. My guest this week was a pain to find. I had to cross a whole road and go across at a mostly outpatient department where his office is. Actually, I didn't even have to cross any road. I just dropped him an email. Dr. David Okai, she's the clinical lead for the Mosley Neuropsychiatry Department, a honorary senior clinical lecturer in neurosciences in Oxford. He has been an advisor to the all-party parliamentary group on the management of the neuropsychiatry of Parkinson's. He worked on the clinical advisory panel of Parkinson UK and serves on the board of directors for the British Neuropsychiatric Association. To be honest, he has a really wide range of research interests from Parkinson's disease progression and how this impacts on personality and behavior to depression and traumatic brain injury. However, it is work on impulse control disorders that we will focus on today. David, welcome and thank you for joining me. Thanks very much, Prosper, and thanks for inviting me. Fantastic. So, David, let's start with the basics. So, Impulse. The first thing that comes to my mind is a fragrance from the 80s, but we're certainly not going to talk about this. So what is an impulse control behavior? And, and at what point does it become an issue? Yeah, so that's an excellent question. And I think it's got um, implications for the whole of psychiatry, really. Um, impulse control disorders are uh, referred to as a group of disorders that where the problem is a failure to resist an impulse or temptation to perform an act. That, and that act is genuinely harmful for the individual concerned. So, and this does relate to the whole of psychiatry. Psychiatry, in my mind, is actually a relatively easy specialty. It doesn't matter what the syndrome is. It doesn't matter how you present or what, what idiosyncrasies the person has. Really, um, psychiatrists become involved when um, the, the behaviors reach threshold for caseness for disorder. So that means that they impact on your social or occupational functioning. And so that's the, in, in relation to impulse control disorders, that really is the question, are these things that you're doing that are repetitive um, and difficult to stop? Um, are they causing harm to your relationships or are they causing harm to your ability to work or interact with others? And uh, I mean, it's interesting, you mentioned, you know, the, that they're repetitive and that they are really uh, hard to stop and resist. So how is this different from a compulsion? Yes, yeah, so again, that's a great question. It's a big debate. You know, um, the obsessive compulsive disorder spectrum have had debates about where they should lie in terms of DSM-5 categorization, for instance, and similarly so for the involved disorders. Um, I, what I'd say is that they share some features, as you say, of um, this ability to, um, inability to refrain from repetitive acts. 
uh, when presented with the choice of immediate reinforcement despite long-term negative consequences. But the key difference between the two really is the function of those repetitive acts. So for example, in OCD, the behaviors are usually driven by an effort to avoid anxiety. Whereas um, the behavioral addiction, so the enforced control disorders, those that, that is driven by the pursuit of pleasure, arousal or gratification. Um, there's a, uh, a famous, uh, you know, sort of CBT um, therapist within the Maudsley who likened a contrast between the two of them as a push versus a pull effect with compulsions den denoting coercion from discomfort and addictions indicating an attraction from something. Um, so in many ways, they share similarities to substance misuse disorders. I'm going to say that is in some ways, of course, a bit simplistic because even with, for example, alcohol, you can have both positive and negative reinforcements. So, for example, those who are severe alcohol-dependent individuals, they will drink not only to avoid um, with the withdrawal syndromes, which would be a negative reinforcer, but they'll also drink presumably because of the habit forward slash sort of slightly more pleasurable components of the condition. So it's a really complex, complex uh, entity in its own right. But on the whole, they're felt to be different from um, OCD. And what I would say is uh, the ICD-5, um, sorry, DSM-5 has brought them together for the first time into a single category of what's called behavioural addictions, um, because there's so much of a wealth of evidence behind the pathological gambling as a behavioural addiction, so slightly separate from the substance misuse problems. Um, but they say at the moment, sexual activity, exercise, shopping doesn't yet have that same body of evidence to put them in that category yet. Mm. I mean, you know, I, I'm pretty sure it's not as straightforward as the question might imply. But, but what part of the brain is mostly related to the impulse control behavior and how we respond to that? Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's a really good question. And I think. This is one of the most exciting things about the impulse control disorders, and that is that we've been able to replicate um, on quite a large number of instances that this is related to an area of the brain known as the ventral striatum, which is part of the frontal um, uh, section of the brain. Um, and even more exciting than that is that Parkinson's is a bit unique in that usually, for most conditions, you don't really know what's going on in other sections of the brain, especially the deep down sections of the brain. But because of something called um, self-thalamic or deep brain stimulation, um, whilst that is designed to try and stimulate the electrical proportion of the small, you know, sort of the small midbrain, which helps with the movement of these patients with Parkinson's who have movement problems, it also allows us to record activity in those areas. Mm. And being able to record activity in those areas while simultaneously recording activity on the outside bits of the brain. And we've seen that there's a clear uh, link between the frequencies between um, what, a part of the, uh, uh, of, the, the, of the inner brain called the subthalamic nucleus. And actually mm. that, that, that relationship between the subthalamic nucleus channels and their corresponding EEG shaped channels shows that um, there is a link both with patients with dyskinesia, those wriggling, jerking, weaving movements, um, which may be an overactivity of the motor circuits. And there's a link between the more ventral aspect of the subthalamic nucleus and the ventral part of the brain, as I said before, which may show a link between um, the more volitional or wanting parts of the brain. Um, 
So really what that seems to show is that there's an underlying role of the subthalamic nucleus in suppressing unwanted or inadequate behaviours uh, or movements. So it's, it's behaviour or movement, which I think would classify will or its or uh, will of movement or its will of, of, of the entirety of, of the psyche as well. I mean, I mean, judging from my, you know, from my uh, life course and my decision-making process, my subthalamic nucleus then must be a bit, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I can already think, David, of a few psychiatric disorders that may present with issues around impulsivity, from addictions that you mentioned already, to personality disorders. And in fact, in a paper from a few years back at the American Journal of Psychiatry, so John Grant found that impulse control disorders were really common among psychiatric inpatients. So are they then just a symptom or a separate disorder altogether? Yeah, I think, again, it's a, it's a fascinating question, Osprey. I think what we're really looking at is a need for a drive away from the current nosology, the current diagnostic criteria, to a, a situation where actually diagnoses, behaviours, you know, um, are, are fueled by the underlying neuroscience. Um, mm. And so we know of uh, Jasper's uh, sort of hierarchy of diagnosis, and that's been incredibly important uh, in managing people in a general sense and in improving our knowledge. But now with the wealth of evidence base behind the neuroscience, we do have to move to features of behaviour that can be understood um, by way of neuropsychological paradigms, by way of imaging paradigms, uh, by way of behavioural paradigms, you know, all the things that might um, cluster a group of behaviours together. If your brain lights up in a certain way um, and you have a certain type of behaviour, and then there's some neuropsychological correlates, neurobehavioural correlates, neurocognitive correlates, and then we should be moving in the group and saying that this, the brain, while it's limited in the way that it expresses behaviours, um, uh, is suggesting that these things are related. So, I mean, I think what we probably need to look at is a broad concept of what is essentially a disinhibitory psychopathology, for want of a better word at the moment, uh, and, and see which of the existing diagnostic categories um, best fit into that concept of a disinhibitory problem, uh, and mm. then see how they're similar and how they're different, as opposed to the way that things are done at the moment, which is this is historically how things have been, and therefore this is how things are going to be. I mean, you are mostly interested though in a specific subset of the impulse control disorders. So the ones linked to Parkinson's. So, so tell me more about it, as it seems that, you know, it's not, it's not one thing, right? So what are the different subtypes that one would expect? Yes. So the history behind this is 20 years ago, um, a group at Queen's Square noticed that um, there were a range of behaviours that some of their Parkinson's patients started to talk about. And if you were doing a uh, multiple choice questionnaire as a medical student at the time, you and someone said there's a link between uh, dopamine, uh, you know, the medications for Parkinson's and gambling, you probably would have said false and you would have been fairly sure in your answer. But of course, when you think about it on a different level, um, the, the medications that are used for Parkinson's may, may well um, stimulate dopamine, which is known to be affected, uh, associated with reward. So, in that regard, there are a range of behaviours that have been recognised in the context of Parkinson's with a degree of consistency somewhere in the realms of 20% of patients. And those are pathological gambling, 
hypersexuality, compulsive shopping, and compulsive eating. And so the first two, the pathological gambling and the, and the uh, compulsive shopping, uh, sorry, those two in particular, um, seem to be related to learned rewards, whereas the hypersexuality and the compulsive eating seem to be more natural or innate rewards. But there are a range of other behaviours, which is why I was speaking before about this idea of a disinhibitory psychopathology, um, where people start to feel compelled to repeat simple tasks, either taking, you know, sort of putting things in order, taking things out of order, dismantling, you know, sort of washing machines or, or and then putting them back together, sometimes well and sometimes badly, or more complex tasks, such as going out and spending, you know, sort of seven hours in the garden until then your spouse tells you to come back in. So those are repetitive behaviours. The, the one that's simple, one that's simple behaviours, they're known as punding for various reasons. Um, mm. And the more complex behaviours, they're known as hobbyism. So what we're looking at is either um, problems such as gambling, shopping, eating, and hypersexuality, or repetitive behaviours such as, uh, which are either simple or complex. Additionally, uh, there's a final group of uh, related conditions where a proportion of patients feel compelled to, to increase their medication above the dose prescribed by their physician um, mm. uh, or take more of the medication than they should be doing as prescribed. And those have, have been known as dopamine dysregulation syndrome patients um, in the past, although our group prefers the term off-period dysphoria for a range of reasons. We think that the reason why people are doing this is because they start to become worried about the coming off they're more likely to have motor fluctuations or movement fluctuations. So they take more of their medication um, in a worry that they might come up with them, that some of their features may be having signs of it coming off. That's really helpful. But, but you already hinted about the link you know, between the medication for Parkinson's and the impulse control disorders. But let's leave the medication aside for a bit, as I would like to touch mm -hmm. on them a bit later. So from the Parkinson's patients, Forget about medication. Who are more prone to develop impulse control disorders? Do we know? Are there any personality traits? Anything else? Yeah, I mean, this is an exciting emerging field, and I encourage anyone who has an interest to look into this type of uh, thing. Um, there are a few things that are now very well established because we have large cohorts of patients that we've been able to look at these things with, including our cohort from Oxford, which was of, of a thousand patients. But on the whole, um, those if you're if you're single, if you're male, if you're young, um, those have been reliably shown to be at increased uh, risk of uh, impulse control disorders as well. Um, interestingly enough, if you have a current or former history of smoking, that again it shows uh, that you're likely to develop uh, one of those problems, which may suggest um, to answer your question a pre-morbid vulnerability. Um, mm. to, to this range of addictive or prone behaviours. Then there are other, other factors. We mentioned, we mentioned medication, and there are subtypes of medication, but we can talk more about that a bit later, if you wish. Um, yeah. And then there are actually some neuropsychiatric associations as well. So depression uh, is more common in those with Parkinson's patients with impulse control disorders than those without. And that, it remains unclear whether that's because depression is a risk factor for ICDs, uh, whether it occurs as an attempt to, whether ICDs occur as an attempt to try and treat your depression. So you're feeling depressed, so you go out and you um, buy yourself lots of clothes, for instance. Yeah. 
um, or whether depression occurs as a consequence of the impact of the impulse control disorders as well. Um, what I would say is depression is associated with so many other neuropsychiatric conditions that it is more likely to be, you know, sort of a co correlated factor um, yeah. of neuropsychiatry in the context of a biological, significant biological component to it as well. And then empathy, which is surprising because you've got these, uh, you've got individuals who may go out and gamble, you know, their entire family, their families, you know, sort of household of money away, for instance. Uh, and that doesn't seem to fit with apathy, but actually um, it's, it's been found to be associated. And perhaps again, maybe it's something about a pseudo apathy um, where, you know, individuals, um, uh, you know, pay less interest to all other rewarding efforts yeah. apart from current one, or, or it may be biologically mediated as well. I think, it, I think it probably is a combination of the two, but that's a, a, an exciting area to look at in more detail. I mean, you know, there, there was a, a recent case report on the Journal of Movement Disorders. So, so they were describing impulse control disorders in a young patient with F-box-only protein 7, which is a, a rare genetic cause of autosomal recessive juvenile Parkinson's. So are there any genetic underpinnings for impulse control disorders? Yes. So, I mean, it seems that there are. I mean, there's a really intriguing study by... Um, uh, uh, Kramer and colleagues who found that if they combined a range of recognized um, genetic vulnerabilities to addictive behaviors, so they were looking more at the dopaminergic um, and some serotonergic um, dopamine signaling and metabolism based genetic uh, uh, linkage uh, variables, that they, that they were able to predict the heritability of a prospective cohort of Parkinson's patients. Uh, up to an extent of 57%. Wow. Um, so I think that's that's pretty uh, interesting. Um, I think that we do need to recognise that this is still an emerging area and it's been limited to a degree by the way that people have screened for the behaviours, have asked about the behaviours. They're not, the, these behaviours aren't a dichotomous measure. They're not a yes, no, do you, do you um, eat, has your, has your change in preference for food? change that you do more sweet things it's on the spectrum so that's probably yeah. limited studies today but the study but now there's more of a consensus on recognized severity scales which means that we can understand uh, this this factor some more as i said before a lot of those uh, genetic um uh, studies implicate dopamine and serotonin serotonin as well uh, alongside other transmitters such as norepinephrine glutamate and opiates uh, to a degree but this is really uh, a very preliminary sort of data. The studies yeah. on the whole tend to be um, fairly powered to, to pick up uh, a huge amount of differences. So again, one to watch for the future. Mm. I mean, they may, they may, the only other thing I would say there is, of course, the interesting, the interesting factor. Sorry, <laughs> the interesting factor of um, uh, you know male uh, male male patients are likely to develop some behaviours, and females would be likely to develop other behaviours. So, Men are more likely to develop gambling. Women more likely to, to develop um, uh, compulsive shopping, for instance, and, it, okay. and that types of things need to be looked at. Whether or not there's a X-link chromosome or, or some other uh, related risk factor. Sorry for interrupting you, Oscar. My pleasure. So, Danny, you recently co-authored the papers, and congratulations. I mean, it was published in a massive journal on brain. So, so in there you describe a pupillary reward sensitivity measure that can in fact differentiate between 
Parkinson's patients with and without impulse control disorders. Tell us a bit more. Yeah, we were quite uh, pleased with this publication. I think the main reason why oh, it's such a were. <laughs> the main reason why is because it's something I, I sort of uh, talk about a lot, which is a need for neurologists and psychiatrists or neuropsychiatrists or even or psychiatrists in general to work more closely together. And uh, I was previously in Oxford, which really promoted the idea of working um, it together. It wasn't this sense of, you know, you go come along and give a bit of advice to someone on the neurology ward and then leave. You know, we were, uh, the, the model was of being really integrated into the neurology teams. And, and King's does a great job of that. And we're keen to expand it even more um, here within the Maudsley as time goes on, as you know, possibly. Um, but this was a large cohort of, of patients with um, Parkinson's disease and um, uh, RBD, you know, sort of uh, REM, um, sleep behavior disorder, who were followed up over several years. And it was a large cohort, almost 1,000 patients, which allowed for some interesting tests and some meaningful results as well. And so in this study, um, we used sort of infrared uh, eye tracking to measure eye position and pupil diameter. Uh, and we asked patients uh, to shift their gaze to a visual target as quickly as possible in order to obtain a monetary reward. And the reward was either no, no P, 10P or, or 50P. Um, and the reward incentive offered uh, sorry, offer varied over trials as well. And we looked at the, the effort the, the patients were putting in by looking at their saccadic velocity. So that's the speed that their eye moves in the direction of the reward, uh, but also the diameter of their pupils. So that's how much their pupils dilated in relation to this wonderful 50p that they might get um, <laughs> over time. <laughs> and, and what we found was individuals with impulse control disorders um, showed heightened sensitivity to monetary rewards. But being off medications um, overnight didn't change uh, the reward sensitivity um, in the impulse control disorder group, but it did for the control group, where they became less responsive to rewards over time. But there wasn't any difference in reward uh, sensitivity when the patients were on, so when they were taking their Parkinson's medication, you know, on is when all your medications work and your movement function is uh, is very, very good, whereas often is when your, your medications have started to run out and you become stiff, slow, shaky, or low. Um, and so that difference in the speed of the movement and the, and the, the pupil dilatation um, provides us a means to differentiate using wow. a physiological measure um, Parkinson's patients with impulse control disorders from those who don't experience them. But even more interesting than that, Prospero, in the control group, those who started, who showed strong saccadic eye movements and those who had lots of pupil dilatation, those were, because it was a follow-up study, it was a prospective study with a thousand patients, those were more likely to go on and develop impulse control disorders as well. So this is incredibly exciting because it gives us a sense of uh, a biomarker to the development of this range of condition as well. Um, it's something that I keep banging on about, but really in my mind, there's no difference between um, movement, you know, whether it's physical movement um, or, or, or psychic phenomena that relate to impulsivity. So if your tendency to move quick or you have a range of movement disorders that show that the cap has come off your control of your movement, 
you'll always need to look for whether there's the psychic equivalent of that. In other words, do they have psychic disinhibition? Do they have psychic yeah. apathy? Um, so movement, uh, motor disinhibition, motor apathy, um, almost or commonly correlates with psychic apathy uh, or disinhibition. Wow, that's that's really interesting. I mean, yeah, let's go back to the medication uh, aspect. So in 2006, a wine showed an association between dopamine agonist use with impulse control disorders in Parkinson's disease. So he followed that up in 2010. So he looked into more than like 3,000 patients with Parkinson's. So he did find that dopamine agonist treatment in Parkinson's disorder is associated with two to up to 3.5 fold increased odds of having an impulse control disorder. And I have to say that things escalated pretty quickly. And in 2014, a paper in JAMA Internal Medicine, they looked into millions of drug adverse event reports. Mm. And they mm. urged, in fact, the FDA to have boxed warnings as part of the prescribing information for mm. dopamine agonists. So, so where's the truth? So I think, I mean, I think if you think about the underlying neuroscience behind this, so there are different dopaminergic pathways in the brain and the dopamine agonists or, or, uh, or levodopa, there are two different types of medications. Dopamine agonists tend to be used in the earlier stages of Parkinson's and seem to be tolerated slightly better uh, in yeah. the earlier stage of Parkinson's than, than levodopa. That's a bit contentious, but on the whole, that's the current thinking. Um, the underlying neuroscience is the the dopamine that you use to treat the motor deficit. So the dopamine you give to treat the movement symptoms works. However, there's a differential um, degradation in this progressive neurodevelopmental, so neurodegenerative disorder. So you'll have a decline in your dopamine receptors in different parts of the brain at different uh, times. So that whilst it's clear that but from the substantia nigra that you have neuronal death at that time, and usually you need 60 to 70% neuronal death before you even start to see um, you know, any, any of these effects, which is part of the reason why um, Alzheimer's trials struggle so much. Because by the time people start to realize yeah. memory, yeah. It's, it's a bit late. But the, the reward pathways are probably still relatively intact when you start to see the movement symptoms. Those are different pathways. They're in different parts of the brain and they have different connections to the movement symptoms. Okay. Therefore, when you give them these dopaminergic medications, whilst you're treating the movement symptom, the same level of dopamine may result in a relative overdose of reward-based uh, circuitry. And that's probably how we see this phenomenon of impulse control disorders as well. So, so let's get a bit clinical then. So you have someone that presents with impulse control disorders and has Parkinson's. So what do we do? Yes. So the first thing I would say is um, prevention is the best treatment. So um, really, if there's an onus on um, neurologists, uh, Parkinson's specialists, um, neuropsychiatrists to, you know, sort of educate everyone about the, this phenomenon that is impulse control disorders, especially in this day and age. I think in the earlier stages, you know, you could get away with not 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 mentioning this because it wasn't well known, but everyone should know about this. So if they notice any of these behaviours, they, they need to um, stop taking them and notify people individually. The next um, approach is a reduction or discontinuation in the dopamine agonist if they're on one. Again, you remember I said that's different from levodopa. And then if possible, a reduction in uh, levodopa as well if the behaviours aren't controlled. 
What I'd say is two things. That should be done slowly. Uh, usually from the, the five studies that have looked at this, um, the remission rates uh, are reasonably similar with a mean improvement of 74% um, of cases. That still leaves a significant proportion of patients um, who, who need something else. Either they can't tolerate the reduction or they'll need something like cognitive behavioural therapy um, as well. So David, you've been telling me all this time, I know I'm oversimplifying this, okay? But you've been telling me that a tablet can actually change your behavior. So the <laughs> final question for the two million pounds, you're not gonna get any pounds. So are <laughs> impulse control disorders the final nail on the coffin for the mind-body dualism supporters? So I, I view being asked that question as a milestone in my uh, career, possibly. <laughs> Go for it. But I want you to think about what we've been discussing. So you take a tablet and that changes your behaviours. It may render you liable to gamble away your family's uh, in, you know, household, their estate. It may mean that you gain weight from because you start to eat and can't stop eating. That's got massive implications for free will and it's got implications for uh, our research into under, the underlying vulnerability factors because not all patients get this. It's got implications for our diagnostic constructs as well. It's got implications, as I said before, for movement, you know, even if that's pupil dilatation or movement uh, in, the, in the context of the tremor uh, and our behaviour. So. It, it, what it shows is these are all so intrinsically linked that there's no sense um, trying to divide them. Uh, that's just a historical uh, phenomena, which is uh, probably being to our patients and we need to uh, fight strongly to stop it. <laughs> <laughs> that was David O'Kagra and people. Thank you so much, David. I'm pretty confident that you know people will be hearing from you in the years to come. And from one <laughs> impulse, to another impulse. So next Monday, we're welcoming a man with more titles than Real Madrid, Professor David Nutt, the president of the European Brain Council. We will talk about repurposing drugs that are currently labeled as illegal, but for a good purpose, for treatment of mental health disorders. Think about MDMA, think about psychedelics, Think about, don't think too much. Possible and Braincast for more than learning over and out. All best. Bye-bye. <laughs>